It's our joy to, to have Jonathan visiting. He asked me some time ago, hey, Dad, uh, when I come home, can I open the word? And I go like, uh, I'd love to hear from you. I asked Faith, and she says, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, Jonathan, you come, open the word. We've been praying for it. Looking forward to seeing the message God has given to you. Good morning. Okay. Just adjust this here. The text that we'll be in today is uh, 1 Samuel 14. If you guys have your Bibles, you can turn to that. Do a sword drill here. Years ago, I heard a story. Um, I was in eighth grade. And it was a story about... Uh, I don't remember what. It's almost one of those stories that's become so larger than life. No one knows if it really happened. Um, it was used in an illustration where there was this guy who was a junior in high school, and he was first in his class. And the story was told that it happened in Cumberland Valley, I don't know, it was like 15 years ago. That there was a boy who was first in his class, he was valedictorian in 11th grade. And God got a hold of his heart, senior year of high school, and uh, he started helping out his pastor, and his pastor was mentoring him. He was going on missions trips. Uh, he was doing whatever he could to help the church. And he was growing, spiritually growing. And as a result, some of his grades started suffering, not substantially, but to the point where he dropped uh, to fifth in his class. When graduation came around, uh, they usually, at most high school graduations, I think they have two speakers, a valedictorian, salutatorian, maybe one other person who's chosen by the class. And on this occasion, this graduation, they had five speakers, and it was first, second, third, fourth, fifth, uh, by way of class rank. And, and it went in that order for speaking. Uh, the valedictorian got up and said, you know, we are the future. We're, you know, the, the world is our oyster shell, and they will know who we are. And everyone started cheering, and it was in a big football stadium. And um, second person got up and said, you know, you know, people, the world will know who we are, and we have all this potential, and people started clapping. And, and it went so on, talking about how the world would know who they are. And this young man got up, and he was the fifth one in line, and he said, Almost the same thing. He said, we're going to go out there. We're going to take the world by the tail. And uh, we're just, we're going to make a name for ourselves. And I started cheering. And he pulled out a, an inflated uh, globe of the world and said, this is, this is what we're going to take over. And everyone started cheering. And, and he took a pin out and he popped it. And then he said, what good is it for a man to inherit the world and forfeit his soul? And everyone stopped. And he took that moment and he shared the gospel. I remember thinking about that story when I was in eighth grade thinking, and that's courage. That's courage. Because you don't know how that's going to play. A lot of people, you know, probably didn't want to be proselytized or evangelized at that moment. And I remember thinking, man, when I'm a senior in high school, I'm, I'm going to be courageous. Or I'm, and <laughs> I still don't know if I am, but... You, you, you hear those stories and you think, yeah, that, you, you think, am I going to have this Tim Tebow effect where people come into contact with me and they're like, wow, 
I just, that's, that's the Lord's man right there. And one of my favorite stories in the Bible is a story here in 1 Samuel. Uh, we'll start here in verse, or ch- verse, chapter 13 and go into 14. And it seems almost more than any other story, and maybe it's because it's my namesake, it's about Jonathan, um, that it's this story that growing up was one of my favorites because it was like this. This was a guy who was courageous. And this is a guy whose sole purpose was to please the Lord, and that was it. And people look at this and they're like, man, it, he could have forfeited a lot, his own life. So let's go through this. So let, me, let me set it up here. So in chapter 13, let me go back. Let me just tell you. So at this point, the Philistines pretty much ruled a lot of Israel at this point. Um, they had almost every advantage that we're going to see here. And so Saul takes 3,000 men, 2,000 with Saul and Michmash. Jonathan takes 1,000, and he goes up and he, beat, he takes down this, this fort of the Philistines. And it's kind of like, I don't know, he was, was kind of like taking a shot at a bee's nest. And all of a sudden now, the entire Philistine army comes out to put down this small little skirmish rebellion. All right, they've got 3,000 men. So in response, the Philistines, they heard of it. And the Philistines, in verse 5, 13, 5, and the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore, and multitude. Uh, that's pretty terrifying. That's, that'd be really terrifying. If you had 3,000 men, you just took down this little fort, you'd probably be thinking, all right, we're pretty good. Let's take down another one. But when the entire, I, I was, the, man, I, uh, I was thinking, when I think of this passage, I think of Lord of the Rings in a lot of ways. I've never read the books, but I've seen the movies. And I always think of, man, like this, this army of Mordor just descending. And the Israelites who thought they were really strong and thought they were courageous, all of a sudden, in verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and tombs and cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. These people, like, fled the country. These people were so scattered. It was like a Looney Tunes. They're just jumping out of the way, hiding behind caves. They're like, I'm not a part of this anymore. Just threw whatever tool they had to the ground and pretended like they were Philistines. Okay. So the, the first disadvantage the, the Israelites have is people, okay, the, uh, and technology. Um, the second uh, is that it says... Uh, we'll go down to 15. And Saul numbered the people who were with him present. Okay, so he went down to about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, the people who were present with him, stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash, and the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Ophrah in the land of Shual. Another company turned towards Beth Horon. Another company turned toward the border that looks down in the valley of Zeboim towards the wilderness. That um, may not mean much. It didn't until you look at a... Um, a, a map. And what it's essentially saying is that the Philistines had the highland. And uh, in Gettysburg, you know that the highland is the, the choice land strategically. Okay? So the Philistines not only have more people, but they have the highland here. They're looking down on the troops of Israel, uh, poised to strike. And then even, even worse, adding insult to injury, okay? verse 19, now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. 
But every one of the Philistines went down to the Philistines, uh, every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. Okay, and so the Philistines didn't want the Israelites to even have weapons. They didn't want them to have anything that could be seen as like peasant warfare type stuff. They, they couldn't sharpen their own stuff. So, uh, skipping on 22, so on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the land of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, uh, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. Okay, so the only two people, okay, of the 600 now dwindling army who have any, any semblance of any real uh, military weapon is Saul and Jonathan. So not only do they have 30,000, uh, what is it? Uh, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, troops like the scene of the seashore have better military strategic location. They also all have swords, and the Israelites are getting together with, like sticks. You know, who knows what they have? They're on their mom's rolling pin, you know. Uh, okay, so, so that's the scene. It's terrifying. It's, uh, when you read this, you're thinking, man, I would probably have left the country. I would have scribbled out Israel on my passport. I, would, I, want, I want nothing to do with that. So in chapter 14, one day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let's go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. Okay, that's kind of kind of random. Come. It's almost like he, he's not aware of, the, of all the disadvantages he has. It's so simple. Come. Let us go over to the garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. I, I, that's key. He doesn't tell his father. Now, Saul, on the other hand, was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in a pomegranate cave at Migran. In the pomegranate cave at Migran. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Okay. Um, and then he talks about how the priests were with him. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone, so he just takes off. Uh, many people would think, well, he's just, you know, a young, reckless son. But I, I think the reality is, is he left and told no one because he knew they were so terrified they would try and dissuade him from being able to go. They probably would have locked him up and thought he was crazy. John, Jonathan, don't go. We'll work out a compromise. We'll say sorry. We'll give them our swords. Just don't go. So Jonathan goes, and within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on either side. And a rocky crag, uh, the name of the one was Bozaz, and the other was Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south side of Geba. Okay, so what that means is Jonathan can't do a sneak attack. Okay, if he's going to go, he's going to go right in the middle of, of uh, a ravine. He's going to go, and there's two massive mountains on either side, and he's going right for the uh, Philistines who have the high ground. He can't conceal himself. So Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of the uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And the armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Now, that's a, that's a good friend. It's also a gutsy friend because he doesn't have a sword, and he's going with this guy, right? He's just carrying Jonathan's sword. He probably had a dagger of some sort, but he couldn't have, I mean, in any one-on-one -on -one type deal, nah, he'd be in a bad, he'd been a pretty, pretty big pickle. But he says, he says, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I'm with you heart and soul. And Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. Okay, so that's pretty much the ultimate 
I mean, any type of military handbook tells you that that's the worst idea. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't go stand at the lower point, reveal yourself, and say, hey, what should we do? Should we come fight you guys? No, don't do that unless you've got like a bazooka in your back pocket. But they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up on us, and we will show you a thing. Right? And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. It's pretty amazing. So Jonathan climbed up, the, climbed up on his hands and feet. So he's, not only is there no sneak attack, these guys are sharpening their swords, getting stuff ready. They think they're going to take this guy down. But he's got to climb a cliff before he engages this innumerable army with just one sword and a guy with like a sickle behind him or some kind of uh, stabbing device. Uh, so Jonathan climbs up. Uh, then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, killed after them. And at the first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, they killed about 20 men within as was a half a furrow's length in an acre or land, of land. So what happened was Jonathan climbs to the top. They think, oh, yeah, all right, you Hebrew dog. He comes out and he starts slaying people, and his armor bearer comes up behind him and probably stabs him to make sure they're good and dead. Okay, so he's coming in, and Jonathan's just going, and, and terror strikes. There's a panic in the camp in the field, and among all the people, and the garrison, even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah and Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was burst, dispersing here and then, there. And Saul said to the people with him, Count, who is with you? And then Saul gets in the action, and then all the Israelites overrun, and all of a sudden Saul becomes courageous, and takes down the Philistines. What a great story of, of heroics and courage. Now, I used to think that uh, growing up, I used to think the Bible is a very big book. It, it is a big book. And depending on it, it can be very small font. And so it can take a long time to read. So as much as I want to talk about courage and biblical application, one of the things I want to talk about with this is properly understanding an Old Testament uh, story like this. Because what I used to think was, man, this thing is so big, the Old Testament is so big, this is a comprehensive story of the Jews. Right? This is a comprehensive, everything that happened, the writer was writing it down. I mean, think about it. Five huge books in the beginning about the Israelites over hundreds of years Man, that's God. Everything that happened, Moses is probably writing it down. Well, that, that's not true. You see, everything in here, there's, there's a purpose for why it's in here. It wasn't just, it, did he do that? Okay, he did it. There's the editor who put this together, and the Holy Spirit worked together to choose what stories and why. And that's important because it wasn't just hey, this just happened, there's rhyme and reason as to why. Just like in a newspaper, the editor comes in and says, this story fits, this story doesn't fit, why? Let, let's add this. Not because it'll sell, but because there's a general purpose as to why we're making this. So when you read your text, it's not just, all right, I read that, that's the next thing that happened historically. 
There's a lot of stuff not in here, but the Spirit of God saw fit that this is the Bible that we have. And it's, it's, it's comprehensive and it's complete and it is, it is full and it's working for what we need. So with thinking that, why would 1 Samuel 14 be in the Bible? Obviously, it tells us about how God saved his covenant people, right? He, he took down the Philistines and then Saul became this king and they took the Philistines out. Well, in this passage, you're sandwiched two things. You know, I skipped over in 13 the part where Saul offers sacrifice and he didn't wait for Samuel. It's an indictment of Saul. And then in 15, the Lord rejects Saul. Sandwiched in between the story about Jonathan is an indictment of how Saul was a bad king. And the contrast, I think, is very clear about what type of king Israel needs. So, the difference is very clear of what type of person God wants. Are you a Saul type of person or are you a Jonathan? The difference is the heart. Keep in mind, Saul was the largest man in all of, all of Israel. He was head and shoulders above everyone. He was the American idol choice to be the king. Everyone saw him and they said, that's the king. We see him. We respect him. He's huge. He seems like a nice guy. That's going to be our king. But when push comes to shove, where's Saul? He's under a pomegranate tree in the middle of nowhere. And Jonathan, who's probably not as athletically or physically gifted as his father, is out taking on an entire army. He had all the outside appearance of leadership and competence, but when it came time to act, he was under a pomegranate tree. It was Jonathan that acted in his heart. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to go through a couple of points of what it is to be like Jonathan and what it is to be like Saul. Some of us can't act courageously because like Saul, we're trying to make ourselves, we try to market ourselves, we try to look physically fit, we try to look like a good king, we like to have things all together, and we never act because we're trying to make ourselves look like the perfect king. We, we, we try and try and try and build this big machine, which is our life, of competence and per- perfection and relationship. And if only a little bit better, if I had a little bit more, if I had a little bit better this, then I can act. If God could answer this, or man, if he'd give me this car or this house, or if I looked and I lost weight or I did whatever, then I know, then I can act, I'll be content. And all we do is we try to make ourselves look more like Saul rather than acting like Jonathan. And those aren't bad things. I mean, those are all things, you know, keeping yourself fit and, you know, I mean, not living in a cardboard box, living in a house. Those are important things. But they're superficial things that God eventually chose to go with David over Saul. So much we look on the outside appearance. I think of David, just the next king. He wasn't even invited in to the choosing of the king. He was outside attending the flock, and yet he was the one who would slay a giant in just a couple chapters after this. His brothers were the ones who looked like Saul, and God said, no, those aren't my guys. Those aren't my, my men. So what does it look like for us to live a life like Jonathan, And not put our life into being like Saul.
first thing is we must be obedient. Some of us wonder, how can I be on fire like Jonathan? I ask that question. I'll look at that. I hear the story of the guy in the beginning, and I think, man, when, what will it take for me to be the guy at work, for me to be the guy who's you know, just sharing the gospel with people? And the problem is that Saul couldn't act. He couldn't. He was paralyzed. He couldn't lead. He had a hole in his life due to his disobedience through which all of his courage seeped out. Is that you? You know the right thing to say. You know the answers. You know how to act, what to say in certain situations. But you just don't lead. You may have secret disobedience in your life that is keeping you from being courageous. From being on fire. If you know you're looking at something you shouldn't be, listening to something you shouldn't be, saying something you shouldn't be, and you're given to such things, then leading is impossible. It's impossible. I can't tell you how many guys I talk to at my church who are in their 20s who seem lost, and they're like, I can't act. And I say, well, are you, do you struggle with this? Do you struggle with that? What's going on? And they're like, yeah, I do, actually. And they wonder why they can't act, they can't lead. Because inside their life, they question the man in the mirror at home. How could they be the man of public leading? It's impossible. Impossible. Deep down, doubt must fill our minds as to wonder, am I truly that man? Do I really believe this? Am I putting on airs like Saul? And then suddenly when fear strikes, everything drains about us that we self-teach ourselves. I'm good enough. I'm strong enough. God's here. Deep down, we don't worship God because there's a secret disobedience. And then finally, when it becomes a tough situation, guess what? We're paralyzed because we don't know if we really believe it. Because in our lives, we offer obedience in 70% of our life. And therefore, God doesn't have any of our life. And then later in life, you'll doubt whether Christianity is really a good religion. You wonder, God was never really that personal. Uh, he never really knew me. He was never really there when my wife left or when I lost my job or when any of that stuff happened. Because when you walked with him, it was kind of a charade. It was like Saul. I, I give the sacrifice before Samuel gets there because, well, I'm just terrified of the Philistines and so I don't wait. It's not convenient, essentially. The reality is, later in life, it's not that God was impersonal. It's that you never knew him. And you're exactly right. When you don't know someone, he's completely impersonal. You knew about him like Saul, but you never felt the warmth and fulfillment of obeying him. Jonathan Edwards in Religious Affections says that, you know, the more you grow in obedience, it's like, a small celestial body like a comet going into a gravitational pull of a larger body. The closer and closer and closer you get, the faster and faster and faster and faster you get going towards that body. The more and more obedience of life, of Christ in your life, the begets the more and more obedience to Christ in your life. And the fulfillment will overflow. God is looking for people that he can make complete. So the first step is obedience. It requires obedience. The second is you have to realize it's lonely. You know, a courageous life, is a, it's a lonely life. 
And no matter how much I say this, it will never cease to amaze and surprise us how lonely it is. Faithless people gather with faithless people, and faithful people gather with no one. There's no one to gather with. Look, look at the text. Saul is sitting under a pomegranate tree with 600 men. Misery loves company. <laughs> Why was he sitting under a tree with so many men? We hear the story and think, we say, Saul, hello. You know, you have the secret weapon of all of antiquity, God on your side. He sent the plagues. He did all these things. Just go. Just go. You know, we hear the story of Gideon and, and, and taking 300 men and God causing confusion and freeing the Israelites. And we get upset at Saul. He had twice as many people as Gideon. And yet here he sits, the king of Israel, with the greatest weapon in the world, hiding. Hiding with 600 men. Why is it that faithful man, the faithful man has one friend? And the other 600 faithless men sit together. I don't think these men become faithless in the community. I don't think so. I don't think it's groupthink. I think that's possible. I think their lack of faith was exposed in community. Deep down in their own lives, individually, they don't really trust God. They don't really fear God. They don't love God. And then when they see 599 other people over there, okay, I'll go over. The concept of God being distant or apathetic was reaffirmed by other men that believed God was distant and far away. If these men weren't going to be with people, then they'd be hiding under a rock like many of the other Israelites by themselves. And I have a couple thoughts about why they're faithless. You know, they, they viewed God as a myth, okay? Now, it had been a very long time since God had, had done the plagues, uh, hundreds of years before God used the plagues. And Gideon was, um, was a distant time as well. So for us, I don't want to say it would be the same time frame. It's not the same time frame. But it would be us like looking back and thinking of Columbus as relatively, I mean, we look back and we're like, oh, all the Bible times happen all within a week. He God did this, he did this, this day, and he did this. But the times were spread out. It seemed like a myth. Well, God did that just like, you know, 500 years ago, people believed in monsters in the sea. And I mean, it'd be almost that type of time frame difference. You can't really blame them. God didn't work as often. And so they probably believed him as a myth. Oh, yeah, God did that with the plagues. And yeah, you know, he took down the Philistines before the different Canaanites. We do that. We believe God is myth. How long ago did God bring that check in that paid for our electrical bill? That happened years ago. He doesn't care anymore. How long ago did God open that door for us to have a job? That happened years ago. But we're, we're, we're constantly forgetting, and he becomes like myth to us. Another one is they viewed religion like we do in the U.S., it, just cultural. cultural. Now, Jesus was very lonely. Daniel, Joseph were lonely. David was lonely. Faith takes us away from fear of man and needing to depend upon people. And it teaches us rather to depend upon God when there are hard decisions. And a man of faith is faithful and the rest go in the opposite direction. It's lonely. I like biographies of Ronald Reagan and Abraham Lincoln. and I really like biographies of a lot of famous people. And when they died, I mean, they had scores of people around them. 
But the, the most pivotal man, the most crucial man in, in world history was Christ. And when he died, he had no one around him. That's a lonely, lonely life. You know, loneliness can be a sign of sin or it can be a sign of godliness. So don't mistake that. Just to close this point on, on faith is lonely, courage is lonely. It can be, some of us can say it's our cross to bear. I'm lonely because I've just had this issue happen. And you become so consumed with your issue that you can't reach out to people and you're lonely. That's different from being lonely because you stand alone. That's a big difference. And some of us count it as a badge of honor to be lonely when it's a really godless loneliness. Not putting ourselves out there, not willing to be vulnerable. That's godless loneliness. Godly loneliness is because you actually stand, put yourself out there, and no one else stands. Not willing to be able to share your heart with somebody in a church is godless loneliness. And so it's always upon us to think about why are we lonely? Everyone feels lonely. But am I lonely because I'm standing or am I lonely because I isolate myself in sin? Faith requires taking the hard road. And this is both literal and, and figurative. And it already says it is because it's lonely. In this case, Jonathan and his armor bearer literally took the hard road of taking their equipment through terrain and up a hill to follow God's plan. It would have been far more convenient for them to have sat under a pomegranate tree and said, Yahweh will figure it out. God will save us. Sometimes God does work without us having to ever leave our comfort zone. He brings a coworker in our office and says, hey, I have questions about God. And it's just this low-hanging fruit, and we think, ah, I'm doing God's work. Let me usher you into the kingdom. Many times he doesn't. Many of those times God uses people of great faith like William Carey or D.L. Moody. He chooses to use those. You know, I used to think of this in the worst possible way. If I say, God, use me, I'm scared he actually will. I'm scared that he'll say, okay, then witness to your coworker and live like a Christian after witnessing. Sometimes I think God will use it in the worst way because it'll say, it'll subvert any plans I have. You know, I, sometimes we have plans that say, well, you know, I'm going to grow up, I'm going to go to college, I'm going to get married, I'm going to have kids, I'm going to retire. Then I'm ready to give God my life. I'm not ready to live a martyr's death. There's too much I haven't done. There's too much I haven't seen. And if I say, God, take my life, I'm scared he actually will. And so we hold it close-handed. We hold our belongings, our life, our time close-handed because we're actually scared. And that's a sign that we don't have any faith. I had a friend in college who was really great at getting out of work. You know, he'd stay away from most of the time of dorms when we, we'd clean the place and come in at the end and do a little work and make it seem like he was really there the whole time. We do the same with God. Like Saul. Saul came in at the very end after the tide had turned and everyone's high-fiving. We took down the Philistines. We do the same. And we, know, we need to be sold that the tough road is a good road. In fact, even more, the tough road is the more fulfilling road. Uh, um, one of the greatest books I, I've read is C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. And he says you're never closer to hell, and I, I know I've said this before, he says you're never closer to hell than when you think about yourself. You're never closer to heaven when you think 
nothing of yourself. The idea here is to be thoughtless about yourself. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a, a, a small booklet recently called uh, something about self-forgetfulness. That's the idea of the Bible. The idea about the Bible is that you forget about yourself completely. Most of us think, we look at this passage and we think, okay, how are we going to be like Jonathan? In fact, this is the first message I've ever preached. I mean, not right now, it's not. But this passage I preached uh, when I was 19 at a homeless shelter in Chicago. And the, thought of my, the theme of my message was, it was almost like dare to be a Jonathan. And I loaded myself up with thinking, guys, these are the four steps towards being courageous. But really, Jonathan didn't think about himself. He said, whether they tell us to come up or come down, we're going to fight. It doesn't matter if they take my life. It doesn't matter if I get this or I don't or if the God opens the door. No matter what, I'm going to be faithful to God because I trust God. That is how you can start to love people and you can free yourself to be courageous. It's not about inspirational messages. You're not listening to, you know, verses set to a rocky theme in your car and then you go evangelize. The issue is you care nothing for yourself, everything for Christ. And that's how you can be gracious in your marriage, in your friendships, in jobs, is you don't consider yourself because you consider Christ. That's the idea. How did martyrs go to their death? Because they didn't consider themselves. That's how they're willing. It wasn't nothing about, well, what's the deep, dark secret? Deep, dark secret is you kneel before the cross. You don't consider yourself because you died with Christ. And to, to die is gain. I would actually encourage you to read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce or Tim Keller's little pamphlet on uh, self-forgetfulness. You know, when I was in high school, I had a health teacher <laughs> who... Uh, um, tried to deter students from taking drugs. And he said, you know, crack is so addictive uh, that a, a lab rat uh, was given like crack, a crack rock. And he came over and he licked it. And then he came back and he licked it. And he licked it. And he started licking it, licking it, licking it over and over and over and over. And his heart started beating so fast that his heart exploded. He was solely considering his joy of that crack rock I know this is like a stretch to be like, how can you use a biblical illustration using crack? But the idea is the same, is that he had no concern for his health. That the joy of just getting more of that cost him everything, his life. That's what the gospel is. That's what Christ is. Is the joy of getting more fulfillment, more contentment, more obedience from Christ easily lets you forget about your body easily lets you forget about everything else. And I say that easily, it's, you grow in that. But that's the only answer towards being ultimately courageous is that you just don't consider the circumstances. Um, and then I have two more. Uh, faith does not guarantee the results, and this is a hard one. Great faith does not mean God clearly lays it out for us. Jonathan says, it may be that the Lord works for us. He was certainly considering the prospect that I didn't. It's amazing that we think God will always do what we want, what we want for him. But sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes we think we'll do great things for him and our plan, and our plan for the conclusion doesn't come to fruition. Just ask the early Christians. We look at passages like Daniel and we think, man, that if we pray openly, God will save it. He'll shut the, 
the mouths of, of lions. And then people prayed in the arenas in Rome and were devoured. It sounds heartbreaking for us only if we're so tied to the expectation that God works for us. If we, if we are drawing into God in the obedience and being like him, we don't consider ourselves, then it's, you know what, I'm just another person. I, I thought about this last couple of weeks. Um, in war, especially old-style war, that front line, I mean, what would it have taken to be in the front line? It would be pretty terrifying because pretty much you're a body that's getting thrown in there. You're probably going to die. But they need you to throw your body in there so that more and more waves can come and eventually topple over the other side. And I, and I began to think it's necessary sometimes, and that's a much smaller thing. I mean, it could be national security or whatever, but this is for heaven. Are you someone that would be willing to throw your body in the front line to make an ultimate difference, a victory that in God's ultimate plan? And some of us aren't even willing to be that front line for God for his ultimate plan, because we sit and we question, we say, God, what would be the end result? Is it going to cost me anything? Is it going to cost me money? Cost me time? My life? I can't be that front line. I can't be that. The final point is this. When we talk about contrasting between Saul and Jonathan, we talk about what it is to be the right king. Jonathan never became king. He should have been. But he wasn't. This text ultimately shows us who is the better and true Jonathan. Who's the better and true king? Who is the real king? Every one of my messages are always going to end with the same punchline. Come back to Christ. It has to come back to the gospel. That's the only way we can be courageous. It's the only way that there can be newness of life. It's the only way that someone can be raised from the dead is by Christ. We look at this passage and we think, man, what a courageous person, Jonathan, to go into harm's way, throw his body at the Philistines. And yet I'm reminded of, of someone better. Jesus was the better Jonathan. Jonathan was very willing to follow God into a hostile territory. He knew God would protect him. He didn't go up against the garrison of Philistines. Jesus didn't go up against a garrison of Philistines. But Jesus did go up against a garrison of demons and was held on trial before all his creation to see alone. Now, the Philistines gawked at Jonathan and said, come up so we can teach you a lesson. Now, the Hebrews have come out of the rocks. Come on up here, let's teach you something. And the Jews mocked Christ and they hit him and they said, testify, son of God, who hit you? Or they taunted him as he was naked, telling him to come off the cross, painting a sign above him as he writhed in agony nails in his body. And when Christ reached the top of the mountain, he didn't swing a sword like Jonathan. He swung a cross off his back. And Jonathan killed 20 men. And Jesus gave up his life to save all men. And even more of the fathers. There's more, no more diametrically opposed observation. And the father, Saul did not know where his son was. Had he known, he probably would have talked Jonathan out of going. And God knew exactly where his son was. Because he sent him. And he poured out his wrath on him.
couple years ago, I read about a story in Connecticut about this. This man, I think he was in his 40s, received a phone call from his sister who lived next door. And his sister said, someone's trying to break into my house. It was late at night. So the brother ran out of his front door, took a gun, and he saw the guy trying to break in. He was all covered up. And he was banging on the door, messing with the handle. And the guy said, freeze. And he pulled his gun out. The guy turned around and tried to reach for something in his pocket. And the guy shot the person trying to break into his sister's house. Put him down on the ground. When he got over, he took the mask off, and it was his own son playing a prank on his aunt. Killed him. It's a horrible story. Terrible. I couldn't read, I couldn't read that and not think that for the rest of their lives, how guilty they would feel. But nothing could be further from the truth than the father actually knowing that he sent his son. There was no mix-up. There was no oops. He sent his son to die on the cross in our place. The father poured out his wrath upon his son in such a way that it can never be poured out on us. He's the true king. He's the king who went against all the odds and acted courageously, lived a perfect life, and died a perfect death, and stands in our place. That's what we come back to. We have a saying at the Summit Church where I work, the gospel is not the diving board into Christianity, it's the pool. We come back to the death of Christ. We come back to his life to keep growing. We never come back into the scriptures to take principles about how we better our life. It's not about us, it's about self-forgetfulness. That's how you're courageous. That's how we live a life of obedience. And that's how we live like Jonathan. Let's pray. Only Father, Lord, I thank you for your son's sacrifice. I thank you that he lived a life where we could not live and die to death. We were supposed to die so that we could be with you in heaven. That is our real home. God, help us not to store up treasures and make ourselves marketable like Saul. Let us not be this earth's American idol choice for what a leader looks like. Let us be your choice. For you look at the heart and not the outward appearance. You're looking to use people. All we need to do is pray for avenues of how to share the gospel. And they've been there the whole time. God, I pray that our lives are lived on our knees, moving ever before you, Lord. I pray around this season and this holiday when people are feeling most alone as a result of sin and separation, we move in to unify and comfort in the gospel. There's nothing to be depressed about if you're a son or daughter of Christ. Our inheritance is hidden with Christ on high. We will be with him for eternity, and this will seem like a vapor. I pray, Lord, equip us. Give us wisdom. More than all, give us a heart of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.